Let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15 with me. Romans chapter 15. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the practical application of Paul's letter to the Romans. And we actually, um, today as we look at the passage, what you're going to find is that Paul is now beginning the conclusion to his letter. And he's going to do a number of things for us. We're really not dealing with uh, what I'm going to refer to as practical application. This is Paul sort of closing out his letter. He's going to deal with a number of things. He reflects on his ministry. We're going to look at that today. He asks his readers to pray for him. There's some greetings where he greets recipients, so he's going to rattle off a bunch of names for us, some people that he's um, saying hi to basically back in Rome. He's going to send some greetings from those that are with him. And then finally, um, he's just going to kind of wrap things up with all that by giving some warnings about um, false teachers to his readers. So today we're going to focus on verses 14 through 21 where Paul reflects on his ministry. And what I like about this is sometimes it's, it's interesting. I think about these characters. I've been studying through the book of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel, getting ready for our next series. And um, I love kind of getting into the heads of some of these people. You know, you get to see who they really are and you can learn to sort of appreciate them. And the Apostle Paul kind of stands out there sometimes where we have all this stuff that he's written, but it doesn't necessarily um, tell you about the person. Paul, until you get to a passage like this, where you really can kind of see what drove him and what motivated him and who he was. Sometimes you can see personality and whatnot. So I, I love passages like this because it's going to give us some insight into the Apostle Paul personally, and then maybe what we can do with that. So we're in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 15. Let me go ahead and uh, just read through that. Chapter 15, again, starting in verse 14, Paul says this, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of, si- or in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout, as far as Elycrium, I fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel Not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. As I studied through this, I found four things, at least that were, in some respects, um, an encouragement to me. I'd like to share those four things with you. They're specifically related to the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Let's go ahead and look at some of these things. The first one is that Paul was clearly passionate about exhorting his fellow Christians, even the mature ones. That's why Paul did what he did. So one of the things that we see about the Apostle Paul is that he absolutely loved exhorting his, his uh, fellow believers in Christ. Even, not just the immature, but the mature as well. Let's look at this. He says in verse 14 here, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. The word for goodness here actually has to do with moral goodness. It's a moral character or quality. And so he says that they're full of it. The fact that they were full of this meant that they were mature. 
what I find striking about this is there's a pretty stark difference between the Romans here and another group of Greek Christians or Gentile Christians that Paul wrote to. We all went through the book of 1 Corinthians um, quite some time ago, but I want to just point out a couple of things here. Both the letter of 1 Corinthians and the letter of Romans were written primarily to Greco-Roman believers, meaning um, those who were Greek in nature. They were Gentiles primarily. Now, obviously, there's, there's Jews in both of those groups, but the letters were primarily written to Gentiles. Now, it's interesting to note that there's some differences with that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had to address a host of moral issues. For instance, he had to deal with lawsuits among one another. He had to deal with sexual immorality. He had to deal with marriage and divorce, adultery, the abuse of spiritual gifts, some bad teaching. But those things are all missing from this letter to Romans. Have you noticed that? He doesn't have to address some of those moral failures, if you will. Now, again, these are all Gentiles. So it appears that while the Corinthian Greeks... The Gentiles there were really struggling with some of these moral issues. It seems like the Christians in Rome probably were a little more mature and didn't struggle quite as much as that because Paul says they were full of this moral character and full of moral goodness. So it appears that while the Corinthians were struggling a little bit, the Romans were much more mature. Now there's a reason for it. Look at what Paul says. He says that they were filled with all knowledge. The word that he uses there for knowledge actually has to do more with experience or wisdom. So in some respects, what he's saying is, you are filled with spiritual wisdom. You know the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Anybody want to venture to guess? There's a reason why knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is head knowledge, is what you know. That's a good thing. The problem is you're supposed to do something with it. Knowledge is absolutely no good if you don't live it out. And so wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. And so that's really what Paul is saying here. He says to these Romans here that they are, the reason that they're full of goodness is because they have been filled with experiential knowledge or wisdom. So Paul's actually talking about their ability to apply their Christian principles to their own life. And that's the reason why they were full of moral goodness. And it's also because of this, he goes on, he says that they were able to admonish one another. It's interesting because, if you think about it, those that have an awful lot of head knowledge about the scriptures, but don't have a whole lot of wisdom on how to apply it, or don't necessarily live it out, they're not usually the best people to correct behavior. Did you ever notice that? There's plenty of people that are puffed up with knowledge, and they always want to tell you what you should and shouldn't do, but you look at their own lives and they're not doing those very same things. See, knowledge about what the scriptures teach, isn't really what's required to admonish or to help or to encourage another believer in Christ. It's being able to apply that wisdom in your own life and in the lives of others. And so Paul here says that they were full of this moral goodness because they were filled with wisdom and understanding how to apply it. And because of that, they were able to admonish one another in Christ. To admonish means that they're able to instruct or to teach or to counsel, to encourage, to help. All those things are sort of wrapped up in that word to exhort. And so they were able to do this. But what's interesting about that is even though, at this point, even though they were mature, at this point you would sort of think that Paul would move on to something else, but even though they were filled with this goodness, Paul still says this in verse 15. But I have still written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. So even though they were mature, even though they were morally good, if you will, even though they had had wisdom and they were able to exhort one another, instead of Paul saying, so I don't need to talk to you at all, he says, but I still wrote to you, and I wrote to you pretty boldly, 
to remind you again. Now, there's two words that he uses there that imply that they already knew these things that Paul was writing to them. He says, first off, I'm going to remind you. If you look at your kids and you say, Man, I don't have to remind you again, that means they obviously knew, right? But he also says, again. So we know that he didn't write them necessarily anything new. He wrote them again to stir them up, to remind them. Now, he doesn't really say what these points are that he highlighted, but we can be pretty clear in the letter. If you look, the first eight chapters, he reminds them of God's redemptive plan, the gospel. Verses 9 through 11, he talks about God's plan for Israel and the church to be unified into a body of Christ. In chapters 12 through 15, he talks to them about how to apply. What does it look like when we live out the gospel in our lives? He talks about the unity of the body and the way that we treat one another and what it looks like to actually live out the gospel in our lives. And so those are the things, the some points here that he mentions that he wrote to them about. So why did Paul feel this need to remind them of these things even though they were already, for the most part, fairly mature? I think the answer is found in Colossians chapter 1. You don't need to turn there with me, but this is sort of, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 are Paul's sort of life verse, if I can call it that. It's what drove him, and it tells us why it was so important for him when he looked at the Romans to think, well, yeah, they're already mature, but I still want to stir them up. I still want to write to them. I still want to encourage them. It's this. Paul says in in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, he says, we proclaim him, that's Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, and here's the key verse, so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. Complete or mature in Christ. Paul says in verse 29 then, for this purpose, for this reason, presenting every person complete or mature in Christ, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. In other words, Paul was not satisfied with just winning souls to Christ. Paul was satisfied with the Great Commission, which is actually not about saving souls as much as it is making disciples. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples by teaching and baptizing. And so Paul wasn't simply satisfied blowing into town, preaching the gospel, and then leaving. Paul wanted to see people mature and grow in their relationship with Christ. He wanted them to be perfect and complete, mature as they would stand before Christ. That's what drove Paul. And so, one of the things we know about the Apostle Paul that we see today in this passage is that Paul loved to exhort his fellow believers in Christ. He wasn't just about the gospel. He wasn't just about preaching the gospel to see people come to Christ. He was actually more about helping them then grow and mature in that relationship with Christ. It only began with their salvation. He was much more interested in growing and maturing them. And so as Paul would look at, a, look at a place like Rome and see the Christians there, it wasn't enough that he'd just go, wow, at least, they're, at least they're saved. Paul wanted more than that for these people. Um, again, it goes back to the Great Commission, which says that we make disciples, not just make believers, but make disciples by teaching them to obey, to walk, to be like this. These Romans were walking in obedience. They, were, they had wisdom, practically applying what they knew about the gospel, which is why there's not a whole lot of corrective stuff. In fact, there's very little corrective stuff in this whole entire letter. Unlike the book of 1 Corinthians, written to, again, very similar type of believers in the sense that they were all Gentile believers. So the first thing we see about Paul here is that he absolutely loved encouraging and exhorting his fellow believers if you think about it, that's why Paul wrote most of the letters that he did. 
Paul would go into a town, preach the gospel, but he would always follow up with writing letters back to those folks to correct things or to encourage or to strengthen. So all of his letters, for the most part, were that way, with the exception of a few like this one where he never met these Romans prior to this. Most of his letters were written back to churches that he had established so that he could continue to encourage them so that they would be complete in Christ. So that's the first thing I think we see here is that Paul loved to do that. I think for us personally, really that ought to be at the heart and soul of who we are. Almost everything we talked about over the last few weeks of the practical application of the gospel had to do with how we respond one to another. And part of that is learning to come alongside each other and help each other to exert or to exhort, to lift up, to encourage. Um, that ought to be at the heart and soul of who we are. That's one of the problems that I have with with the whole seeker sensitive movement. If you think about you know what's happened to churches nowadays, where um, many within the church have focused so heavily on evangelism that they've forgotten about discipleship and have handed over their church services to the unsaved, thinking that it's all about winning people to Christ, but it makes for a very immature body. We have to do both. We have to lead people to Christ, but also expect that they grow and mature. Bill Heibel, who's, who's kind of started that whole seeker-sensitive movement back in, I remember, about the 80s, um, discovered something after about 20 years of building his church. He had said, we see a lot of people come to Christ, but we have a very immature church family. In fact, they published a book on it. He commissioned a study within his church. And then they published a book on what they had found. And what they realized was we spent so much time on evangelism and not much discipleship actually took place. And we have a very immature church family. If you look around the church, that model has become very prominent with many churches around the nation. And what we find now is, according to Barna, that the, the, what the Christian body today knows theologically is very little compared to what it did just 20 or 30 years ago. In fact, some believe that the church body today is probably the most ignorant when it comes to theology of any generation in history. Now, we don't know if we can really prove that or not, but it's fairly common. In fact, Pastor Jim one time, as as we were talking at an elder meeting back at at Grace, um, somebody asked him, how many people, when you look at Grace as a whole, and you think about salvation, how many of the people in this church family do you believe are actually saved? And Jim pegged it at about 50%. I think it was something off the top of his head, meaning that there were an awful lot of people that are sitting there in the pews that maybe had a cursory understanding of the gospel but had never committed their lives to Christ. Now, I don't know if Jim was right or wrong, and if you ask him today, that number might be different, but his, his point was that um, churches are filled not just with people that are maybe unsaved, but also people who have not matured and grown in their relationship with Christ. And part of that's our, our fault and our responsibility. Paul would not have been satisfied with that. Paul loved to see people grow, and so one of the things we know about him is that he loved to exhort, to encourage believers in Christ, even the mature ones. Let's look at a second thing. Paul also understood that his ministry was a gift and an offering back to God. He understood that his, that his ministry was something that had been given to him by God, but it was also an offering that he made back to God. Look at verses um, the, the second half of verse 15. He says, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul described, first off, his ministry as an act of God's grace. Grace simply means unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve. We can say that pretty clearly with the Apostle Paul, considering how we're first introduced to him. We're first introduced to Paul in the book of Acts as this murderous Jew who's running around killing Christians. 
So when Jesus knocks him off his horse, basically he tells him, well, guess what, Paul? I see that you're persecuting me. You're now going to go out and you're going to not only um, present the gospel, you're going to do it to the Gentiles, and you're also going to suffer for my namesake. Paul certainly didn't receive his ministry, if you will, because of something he did and deserved. It was purely an act of God's grace to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Three times in those verses, Paul says that I received grace from God in his relationship to his ministry. And so Paul understood that his ministry that he had been given was really an act of God's favor towards him. How many of the times do we think about that? You know, when you think about um, you being saved, obviously, as, as a gift of God's grace, but as you think about the way that God has gifted you and uses you in the body of Christ, do you think of that as a gift of God's grace? Because that's the way the Bible describes it. 1 Corinthians 12 says that we've all been given gifts to minister to the body, and those are acts of, of God's grace called charismata. They're gifts of God's goodness to us. Paul also understood that this gift that he had of ministry was an offering back to God as well. In other words, it was one of the ways that he would make offering back to him. Now, if you put that in an Old Testament context, the Jews were to bring offerings back to God, and they would do that through what God had done for them. God gave them good crops and you know, yield, and they would return some of that back to the Lord, the first fruits, etc. Well, you and I um, think of offering sometimes simply as what we bring to church on a Sunday morning and put in the... We used to call it coffers, but little box in the back there. But Paul said, you know, actually, the ministry that I have, that God has given to me, as I exercise that, that's actually my offering back to him in doing that. You notice in this text here, if you look at verse 16, Paul does something rather interesting. He says, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Think about it. Paul was a prophet, but here he refers to himself as a priest. And I found that rather interesting, because a prophet's job is actually to declare the good news of God. In this case, it would be the gospel. A priest's job is to manage the offerings of the Old Testament temple. He was the intermediary between those gifts and, and God, if you will, or between the people and God. And so Paul refers to himself here as a priest, not necessarily a prophet. I think that's interesting. But the reason he does that is he basically is going to talk about his offering of the Gentiles. And you notice the New American Standard there says, as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering, you notice the my there is italicized. Now you may not have the word my there. I think there's two other versions. Um, I think the um, ESV possibly, and maybe another one doesn't have the word my there. The word my is supplied by the English translators. It, the, the text just says offering of the Gentiles. But the word of there can be translated in a couple of different ways. One of them is if Paul is talking about the Gentiles and their offering back to God. Okay, I won't bore you with what the terms are for that. So in one instance, Paul could be saying the offering that the Gentiles make to God. Okay, The offering of the Gentiles. Okay, If I said that we made a donation here as a church to, um, say, the Red Cross, okay, we could say the offering of renew. 
It's our offering to the Red Cross, right? Another way to translate the of here is um, Paul's offering of the Gentiles back to God. That the Gentiles themselves are the offering. Now, from a language standpoint, there's no way to absolutely know for sure. It's left up to the translator. Now, in Paul's day, they probably would have understood. Okay. Now, again, there's fancy terms for this. I won't go into the, the details on that. I believe that what Paul is referring to here is his offering to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles are Paul's offering back to God. That what Paul is talking about here is that he is a priest who is making an offering back to God, and that offering is the Gentiles that have been saved. And so Paul, as he looks at his ministry, says that as he goes about, and as he does his ministry, as he sees Gentiles come to Christ, and as he then sees them grow and mature in their relationship with God, that they might be perfect and complete, as he says in Colossians, Paul viewed that as his offering back to God. Now think about that for a second with us. As you exercise your gifts, do you think of them the same way? Do you think of your exercise of those gifts as being an offering back to God? I'm not talking about doing something to get his favor or to make yourself look good, but that when I exercise the gifts that God has given to me, that's just like the Old Testament saints bringing their free will offerings back to the Lord. It's the way that I offer things back up to the Lord. He's given me the gift of helps, and so as I help people, that's an offering back to him. A sweet-smelling offering, as Paul says elsewhere. You know, um, I've been given means by God, and so I take those means, those finances, and I use those to, to help people. I put them back into the church. Do I recognize that that is an offering made back to God? As I stand up here and I teach and, I, and, um, and the Bible studies and other things that, that I do, um, do I see that as that is an offering back to God? That's the way Paul saw it. And so he saw his ministry not just as um, this gift that he had received from God, but also that it was an offering back to him. And I think this is kind of important too because it's interesting when you see ministers that have abused their authority in the pulpit and whether it's committing adultery or fraud or other things and they get booted from the ministry for a short time. <laughs> and almost immediately you begin to see them clawing their way back into a position of authority. Um, there's been some fairly popular um, national Christian leaders that have recently done that that because of some certain sins, were booted out of the ministries, and they moved to another state and established another church and take their following following with them. I don't think they truly understand the gift. Because when you understand it's a gift that's been given to you, you treat it differently than when it's something you believe you've earned and you should have. Um, it's my ministry. I should be able to do with it what I want. Um, Paul didn't see it that way. He saw it as a pure gift from God, which meant that there was a response. These willing to suffer for it, recognize the value that was given to him in that. But he also recognized that it was a way to offer back to God. How about the third thing? Paul actually loved to boast. The key, though, is that he didn't like to boast about himself or his own accomplishments. Look at verses 17 through 19. He says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as 
Elikriam, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul loved to boast, but not about himself or about what he personally was able to do or to accomplish. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I love the way the New English translation, the NET translates this. He said, for I will not dare to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in order to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. Did you catch that? He says, I won't dare to speak about anything except what God has done through me to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. By word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, do you know what a braggart is? It's a fancy word. Kimberly can put it on one of your cards from yesterday. <laughs> she was showing me her vocabulary words yesterday. A braggart. It's not a word we use a lot today, but it, it came up during the presidential campaign, actually. What's that? I heard. To be braggadocious. They're really, it's related. A braggart is somebody who boasts in himself and his own accomplishments. It's just, I love the word, you're a braggart. <laughs> you know, I love these older words sometimes, bringing those back into play. I'm going to give you two quick, one of them I've already mentioned, it came about with the presidential campaign. If you were to sort of describe President Trump in one word right now, what word might you use? Confident, maybe? Humble. Humble, (laughs) Definitely not, not humble, okay? Um... But again, this is not, uh, I'm not making a political statement one way or the other, in favor or against or whatever. I'm typically saying that the one thing that really stands out about, about President Trump is that he is definitely a braggart. He loves to brag about himself and about his own accomplishments. You know, it's the greatest tax cut in history. I'm going to be the greatest president in history, you know. Um, I've got the greatest hair. Well, he didn't really say that, but... Um, but he's, he's a bit of a braggart. He loves to talk about himself and about his accomplishments, right? Um, I had a gentleman, young man when I was in high school that we had a nickname for, Slick. We called him that because he was a bit of a braggart as well. Um, always talking about himself. Always talking about how he was a ladies' man and always talking about this and that. and just. I mean, I mean he was a good swimmer. He's a good-looking guy. Um, Great physique, you know, he's like that perfect swimmer, you know, kind of everybody wanted to be like him in that respect, but the one way we didn't want to be like him was that the guy had an ego the size of the pool, you know, um, and, cause he was, and it just turned the rest of us off because he would brag about himself all the time and always about his accomplishments and all the women that, it's funny, I never saw him date anybody in high school, but yet all the women loved him according to him. You know, I remember one day I was, at a, we all lifeguarded with him and at one, one particular day, I was on chair 10, and uh, which is the our favorite chair. It was at the deep end where all the action happened. You know, if you went, if you were on like chair one, it was on the toddler end. Nobody wanted to be on the toddler end. You know, your your lifeguarding kids where the water comes up to their toes. You know, so I was on chair 10. He was what they call um, a beach patrol, so he was walking around. And every time he came to my chair, he told me about a new woman on the beach that was interested in it. That he saw, she was looking at me. You know, and he's going on and on about himself. He's a bit of a braggart. Okay, nobody nobody likes. A braggart, okay? Well, Paul believed in bragging, but he bragged about a bunch of other stuff and never about himself. But they all had to do with Christ. Turn to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians. You can tell a lot about a person by what he brags about. If he brags about himself, he's in love with himself. If he brags about other people, he likes what other people are doing. 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let's rip, rip through a couple of these things. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says this, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in our affliction. Why? Because he's boasting in them. Bragging about them. Look at verse 14 of chapter 7. For in anything I have boasted to him about you... He's talking there about boasting to Titus about the Corinthians. He was bragging to Titus about the Corinthians. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 24. Paul says, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Look at chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. So Paul loved to boast about Christians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul bragged about his weakness. Look at 11 chapter, or chapter 11, verse 20. He mentions some boasting. But he goes on, and he says in verse 30, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. What Paul had just done is he rattled off all of his qualifications to be who he was. But he says, but I don't boast about those things. I don't boast in myself. I love to boast about the things I'm weak in, the things that I have to depend on Christ Four. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. Paul would boast in his weakness. So he loved to boast about other people. He loved to boast about his weaknesses. He liked to boast about something else. Turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. Or Galatians chapter 6, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 14, Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, he boasted there in the cross of Christ or the gospel. So Paul boasted in other people, he boasted in his weaknesses, he boasted in the cross, but the thing he didn't boast about was himself. He says again in our chapter 15 today, I dare not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished in me. So he loved to boast about what the Lord would do, but not in himself. Which is pretty amazing considering that Paul wrote almost half our New Testament, was probably the greatest apostle who ever lived, impacted the world. I mean, you think about the gospel um, among the Gentiles would have likely never happened. I mean, God might have chosen somebody else, but my point is that Paul led the world to Christ. He went outside of Jerusalem to the Gentile world. And it's because of him that most of us are sitting here today. If anything, he had reason to boast and say, yeah, that was me. That was me. But he didn't. Only what God had done through him. The last thing I want to just touch on is that Paul was motivated to go where he saw the greatest need. He was motivated to go where he saw the greatest need, even though it brought about great hardship to him. Look at chapter 15, verses 20 through 21. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul was motivated by where he saw need. And in this case, where he saw the greatest need. 
When Paul was saved, there were already probably tens of thousands of Christians living in and around Jerusalem and around the regions like Judea and Samaria. Um, in fact, in a couple of instances in Acts, we saw 5,000, 4,000 get saved at a time. Now, you can imagine that the, that the demand that would put on the church, recognizing and realizing these people had come to Christ but now needed to be discipled, as Jesus said. There would have been a significant need for good Bible teachers. Paul was educated like few were in his day. Educated in the best schools by the best teachers. He understood the law probably like few did. He could have easily plugged in among any one of those area churches to help and to teach and to ensure there was a significant need for that within those churches. You have all these Jews and Gentiles that had come to Christ, actually mostly Jews, but some Gentiles that had come to Christ that now need to be taught how to understand the gospel in light of the Old Testament scriptures and everything else. So Paul could have easily just felt comfortable going right in. But he didn't. Instead, he took the Gospels to a people who were not his people, to people that would probably hate him. He did that instead. Went where there was the greatest need. Now, part of that was his calling. God told him, you're going to the Gentiles. But Paul was actually motivated to do that. We see it here. So he says, I aspired to preach the Gospel where where Christ had not already been named. So Paul went outside Jerusalem and preached the gospel, oftentimes in hostile territories. And he did it to his own peril. If you think about what that did, um, the Jews hated him for it. Many of the Jews did. Just hated him for it. So there was great cost to himself. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read through a chunk of verses here, but he says this. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may also boast a little bit. For what am I saying? I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness and this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. And what Paul is doing here is basically going to list off as what he's gone through, and at the end of it he's going to say, but even with all that, I have the right to boast in that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. But listen to some of the things that Paul went through. He says, For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I will speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. What he's done, basically, is people were looking down upon Paul. And Paul's basically saying, take a look at my credentials here. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They believed that you'd probably die at 40. So Paul basically saying, I was brought close to death at least Five times in the beatings and the whippings that I received. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep, basically floating around in the sea. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. In other words, dangers. 
I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, even without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure of me, of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Go ahead and I'll just stop there. Basically, look at the stuff that Paul had to endure because he decided to go where there was the greatest need. He didn't take the easy route. He didn't just go where it was comfortable, go where he was welcome, go where he was wanted. One of the things that kind of turns my stomach um, is when I see these... um, I won't put names to this, but when I see these national pastors, I guess I call them, these guys that have a ton of clout with the big, and it's not all of them, I'm not saying that, but with these big mega churches where they um, have been made very wealthy, very rich. And they make arguments that, well, we don't get paid by the church, but they establish these circuits, they go on these preaching tours at all these other big mega churches and give, are given these huge sums to do that. But they can argue, well, we don't get paid by our church. But they're making these massive salaries and building large homes and, and you know, we got others that are, you know, trying to have their own jets and all that kind of stuff. And um, they're going where it's comfortable, where they're wanted. And it makes them filthy rich. And I don't think it, I don't think it honors God. I'm not saying that a pastor shouldn't be rich. I'm not saying a pastor should be rich. I'm simply saying that the issue is when I look at some of these guys and I see the way that they're managing their ministries and I see how they, they go from place to place where they're wanted and they have a cult following and, and they receive massive donations for doing that kind of stuff and it's this little scheme, this circuit that they do and they deceive the flock. Much of them, if you look at their teaching, you'll see that. You see it more prominent in some charismatic circles, but even within evangelical circles, you see that somewhat now too. They go where it's easy, where they're wanted because it makes them filthy rich. Um, Paul didn't go where it was easy. He went where he saw need, even at great, great cost to himself. Now, what do we do with that? Well, it means that when we exercise the gifts and abilities that God has given to us, as we look at our ministries, the question is, do we just do what's easy and what's convenient for us? Or are we willing to put ourselves out there a little bit? Are we willing to simply say, you know what, I see a need over there and because of the way God has gifted me, I'm going to fill that need even though that might be some cost to me, even though it might not be the easiest thing to do. That's really the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. So for us, if we're like Paul, we would go where we see need. Really, that's where our giving is supposed to be. Financial giving, New Testament giving is to give where you see need. It isn't just writing a check out of your bank account every day because it's 10% or whatever it is you do. It's giving where we see need. It's giving based on need. And that's the way Paul's ministry worked. So what do we do with with all of this stuff here? I want us just to imagine for a second what the church might look like if we were a bit more like Paul. How might it look if we were all intent, encouraging, and exhorting one another to grow and to mature in Christ? If that was really our heart. If if we woke up in the morning and we said, you know what, um... My heart and soul today is that I want to see my fellow believers grow in their relationship with Christ, and so if I need to do something today, I will. What would the church look like if every time we showed up at church, our, our heart was to pour ourselves in and say, you know what, I can see these people maybe once a week here. I'm going to look for a need and see if I can meet it. Um, see how God might want to use me. How might the church look if every believer understood that our gifts and abilities 
were given to us as just that, a gift of God's grace. And that when we exercised it, it was our way of giving back to God. We probably wouldn't have problems getting volunteers in churches, would we? That happens a lot, though. You want to know one of the reasons why so many churches um, have these large staffs? Many times it's because we live in a culture where we pay everybody to do stuff. You know, I, I receive a, a small stipend here for teaching. It's one of the ways you guys bless me. Okay, so I'm not opposed to um, pastors and staff being paid. But it's interesting um, how many churches have these large, large staffs where they're paying people to do stuff that the church family should probably do. We run it like a business in many respects. Um, there was a, uh, you know, Francis Chan. Um, I don't agree with, with some of Francis Chan's stuff, but he was a, a mega church pastor, if you will. But he left his ministry and left his church partly because, as he looked around, he thought, wow, look at the resources we're putting into the church that should probably be used outside of the church. And some of the things he referenced were these things like large buildings or large staffs of doing things that the family, the, the church body ought to be doing. So what he's doing now, he's actually launching small house churches where each small house church has two pastors that are lay pastors, kind of like myself. Um, and they're these little tiny bodies. They don't have to have a big place to meet in. They don't have to spend a ton of money to do church. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I'm saying it's interesting to see how his heart has, has looked at that and gone, wow, we put an awful lot of resources into paying Christians to do things that many Christians ought to be doing just because. They're gifted and their abilities. Um, there was a church out in California not too long ago that when it came time to build a new sanctuary because their church was growing so much, said, what are we doing? We live out in California where it's sunny 99.9% of the days of the year, so their sanctuary is now a big outdoor amphitheater. And they said, if it rains, so what? Bring umbrellas. But they saw the same thing. They thought, wow, for us to put $300 million into building a massive sanctuary to seat us, we could use that money to do other things. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm simply saying that they began to see some of the same things. Um, just imagine what the church would look like if every Christian came into church and said, i got gifts and abilities, I can do stuff that God has given me to do, and it's my way of making my offering back to him. Instead of, well, but they pay that guy to do it. You know, we got a custodial staff that does that. He gets paid to clean out the bathrooms. Whatever it is. Um, we're all given gifts and abilities. What would it look like if God's people couldn't stop boasting about Jesus and stop boasting about themselves? Um, I'm not saying we've got a problem here, folks. But um, if every Christian had the heart to just boast about only what Christ did, not boast in themselves, not boast in their own accomplishments, but just, man, I just want to boast about what Jesus is doing. I want to boast about what Jesus has done in my life. I want to boast about what Jesus uses me for, what he does. That's worth boasting about. And then, lastly, what would the church look like if we all had the same attitude that Paul did and were motivated based on need? To go where the need was greatest. Not just where it's comfortable. Not just where, you know, we get the praise for doing what we do. But going where we see need, ministering the way that we need to minister. Um, going where we see the greatest need. Probably a very different looking church, wouldn't it? I think I, I've praised you guys quite a bit. Um, I love renew and I love the, our heart and what we do here. And I see a lot of these things reflected here at Renew, for which I can praise God. Um, I love watching you guys and you guys are a huge encouragement to me because of that. 
Um, so in many respects, I'm talking about the church of God as a whole, what that might look like with these things. Because just as Paul says he loves to boast, I love to boast about you guys because of what I see. 